Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth, and growth. And similarly, when the government sends a check, it may, in effect, be doing the equivalent of printing paper money. So this is this is stability, financial stability uh, that they're doing, that they're effectively uh, trying to deal with here. So that's an important part of the. Uh, you know, the diagnosis and the sort of the, yeah, the evidence uh, assessment that uh, we do. This broader discontent of globalization that I talked about uh, uh, with emerging markets in developing countries is showing up in a peculiar way in the lack of support for the West, for United States and Europe and other democracies. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. I always find very curious is when people talk about the cost of money. Of course, we all know that money's got a value, but it does have a cost, of course, if you want to borrow it. And that cost is creating all sorts of problems right now because interest rates are shooting up. And often when you pay more for something, the cost of money has gone up. You value something more if you paid more for it. So is there a relationship between the cost of money and the value of money? And why do we allow that cost to vary so much? Today, understanding the cost and the value of money. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So when we talk about the, the the cost of money, Steve, we're really talking about interest rates, aren't we? Because the interest rate determines how much it costs to borrow money. But as we uh, know now more than ever, that cost can change radically over time because interest rates are shooting upwards for a long time. Before the pandemic, they were incredibly low for a long period of time. And all the time, central banks are telling us that they are managing the stability of money uh, so, you know, they're clearly not doing what they, they're they supposed to be doing because it is all over the place. But is this the right way to think about money, Steve, that it has a cost that is related to how much it costs to borrow? Because I feel like I am given money by the people who employ me. I mean, I, I, I might borrow to do the house up, but day-to-day living, interest rates don't impact the money I have. It's, it's how much I get paid. I mean, so interest rates don't directly uh, influence, you know, the cost of money. To me, I'm more concerned with the value of money. That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, and this is one of the complete messes of letting neoclassical economists run everything, is that the one thing they think is a control mechanism for capitalism is actually the thing that probably most destabilised, the rate of interest. And, uh, you know, as you say, for most of us, what actually matters is the cash in our, our bank accounts and, and the, the flow through of, of money, the, the turnover of money, uh, this part of us receiving an income and then spending and therefore generating incomes for other people. Uh, this, the, the interest rate affects the peripheral, the change, uh, because you're going to only, only going to borrow money if you see the terms as being 
reasonable for you. You could be wrong about that, of course, in the future, but you'll only borrow depending on the rate of interest. So it's affecting the rate of change of debt. And ironically, that's the thing which mainstream economics has ignored, mm. and that's why there's such chaos. Right. But, I mean, I'm only concerned about how much the money I've got, what it's worth. It's what it's going to buy. What's its spending power? Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we have abandoned the idea that we're going to extend the house a little bit for now because it, it costs too much to borrow. Uh, but the value is what we're concerned about day to day. Uh, and, uh, and yet this – and so – you know, it feels like interest rates are a, a bit on the periphery, really. The, the cost of money is a bit irrelevant to us. Well, you know, you've got to see how big the periphery is, and this is the issue, because we, we tend to think, and this is one of the, the failings of, of, of the way we've been miseducated about money by conventional economists to begin with, but we, we tend to think about you know, consumption as coming out of our income. Uh, but if you look at how much of our spending at the, at the aggregate level actually comes out of change in debt. It's huge. It's of the order of 30% of GDP. Um, uh, it can be that high uh, because investment and speculation are major parts of, of, of what we do with our money as well. So if you just look at the consumption side, there's pretty much no change. Uh, if you go back uh, 40 years, you'll find the level of credit card debt when they first came in hit about 10% of GDP. This is going on Australian figures, but it's not too far out for the rest of the world. Fast forward 40 years, what's the percentage of credit card debt compared to GDP? About 10%. It's been up and down, but it's gone nowhere. Uh, whereas the level of private debt has gone from 25% of GDP to 225% of GDP. And that's the issue that mainstream economics has ignored, which has made this thing so volatile. Right. Um, but does that happen because yeah. the, the cost of that debt, because interest rates have been so low? Is that why, the change? No, no. It's actually the reverse. Mm. As the level of debt's risen, which they've ignored, the impact of their control mechanism has got heavier and heavier. So if, again, if you go back to the 1970s and 1980s, when we started seeing uh, rising inflation and then mainstream economists came in with this belief that the interest rate was the control mechanism to stabilise the economy. Uh, they were making, when they made an interest rate change, the normal change was one by 1% one up or down. On occasions, there were changes, I think, when Vokta was in charge of much of 2 or 3% in one, uh, in, in one meeting of the Federal Reserve. Now, you imagine trying that right now. Uh, I mean, Wall Street would, it would not exist mm. uh, the day after there was a 3%, the 3% change in the rate of interest. So, what's actually gone on and they've, they've completely ignored it They're, they collect the data they don't even look at the data because according to their model it doesn't matter they collect the data on a level of private debt but they haven't watched how it's been growing over time and uh, again Australia is an extreme example going from of the order of uh, about 40% of GDP to 220% but that's a common phenomenon around the world and therefore that control mechanism that they think they can fine-tune the economy with has gone from a fine-tuning device to a mallet. And they dare not, well, they only, only end with the inflation started rising recently, do they start making changes by more than one quarter of 1%. So you're saying it's not working, it's never worked then. So even though <laughs> we've put up interest rates, we've still, by and large, maintained the same level of consumption. Well, I mean, yeah, this, and this is the thing. They, they, the near mainstream economists have what they call an Euler equation, which is an insult to a great mathematician. Uh, but as part of that, what they argue is that people 
when you go shopping, you are considering the infinite future of interest rates and how much money you'll have left to be the bequests to pay to your great, 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 great grandchildren times, you know, times how many factors you like to help them pay taxes, which are due to the deficit you're experiencing in the government spending that year. I wish I was joking. That thinking is because we're thinking of the cost of money rather than yeah. the value of money. When you go shopping, when you go shopping, yeah. according to the Euler equation, relates the interest rate to the level of consumption. So in their models, if they put the interest rate up, that will encourage you to consume less. How? I mean, nobody does that. Mm. And not even economists themselves. Unless they're think borrowing the it all, which gets back to my early point, yeah. doesn't it? That, you know, if, yeah, you don't, yeah. if, if you yeah. don't have a, st- yeah. a steady income, which is where you're really getting your money from, uh, it's, yeah. it's borrowed money. But that is only a small proportion of all the money that we use. Most of it is, as I say, yeah. given to us by our very benevolent employees. Well, I mean, you've got, if you, you, my, my little, uh, the, because I've done the, work, done the work on on trying to find out how do we fit credit into aggregate demand, uh, if you know the old Milton Friedman argument, he says uh, the, 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 the uh, nominal GDP, which he, which he called broke down to the price level times real output, is equal to the money plus the rate of change of turnover of money. Now, that completely leaves out credit completely. And I, uh, I think I was back in 2017, I did the work for this, but I showed if you, if you look at the economy through the lens of a, a table that basically relates one person's spending to everybody else's spending, and then you include, with you borrow money to do that spending, then you, when you take account of the fact that A, we live in a, a, a monetary economy where banks create money by lending, and B, you don't borrow for, the, borrow for the sheer pleasure of being in debt, you borrow to spend. When you include that spending, you find that Milton Friedman's equation changes from being um, the price level times real output equals money times velocity to the price level times real output plus change in the value of financial assets is equal to money times velocity plus the change in debt. Now, that's what they're leaving out of their thinking, mm. the change in debt, and that's what credit comes in, and that's where interest rates do have an impact. And what we're seeing right now is they put the rates up in the real world. It's not affecting whether you, you know, what you go and, and buy at, at Sainsbury's. It affects whether you decide to take out that loan to do the renovations on your house or whether as if you're, if you're in, investing, whether you borrow money to finance an expansion or not. And that's, that's the area where it has a real impact. And, uh, and until, of course, people are yeah. uh, you know people are so hard up that they're they're borrowing to survive, uh, you know, and so they are taking out credit card debt to to cover their shopping bill, for example. It's not a very sustainable model, but you know, short term, I think we're probably already seeing a, a bit of that. So then, you know, we uh, we we are concerned with the cost of money because we're having to borrow more to 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 get by, which we don't normally have to do. Well, people down the bottom end of the spectrum, particularly in the UK and, and Europe in general now, but I think Italy is one of the worst examples, they're facing that because of rising energy costs. Yep. The only way they can boot is by maxing out their credit cards. But the thing is, once you max out your credit card, it's maxed out. You can't continue extending it. And if you try to get a loan to pay your, your gas bill, you're not going to get it. So what it means is rather than extending debt to continue consuming, you'll do it for a temporary while, then you run out, and you've suddenly got this, the servicing cost of that debt uh, taking away some of the money you used to have 
uh, anyway. So you end up with riots in the street and people burning their bills because they simply can't afford to pay. Yeah, and you know, burn the bill to keep warm. Hopefully you get a really long bill. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, with that. In fact, the energy company should use some sort of paper that burns for longer, shouldn't they? That yeah, just... they, 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 yeah, the bills should be related. They should weigh in kilos as much as they're charging you in euros or pounds, and that way you can burn the bills and they and stay warm. There we are. There's our first solution and straight the, away the, today. The, the note, the note, and the notices that come out that tell you you haven't paid in time, they should weigh twice as much. What about the, the relationship between, um, you know, the, the cost of money and the value of money then? So if, um, you know, normally if things cost more, we uh, we buy less of them, obviously, because we can afford less of them. So if, if money costs more to borrow because interest rates go up, then presumably by the same logic, we're going to borrow less. So that means... Because when uh, when money is given out as a loan, that's creating money. So if we're borrowing less, that means there's less money around in the economy. So does that impact the value of the money because there's less of it now switching around the economy? Well, I mean, what you're actually asking is whether it's going to reduce the inflation rate. Yeah. Okay. And the the answer, I think, ultimately is yes, because if you smash the economy hard enough over the head with a mallet, then it tends to become unconscious. Uh, putting putting that into into you know, less of analogy, more of realism. If you look at the vo- the Vocler interest rate rises back in the, uh, the I think it was the um, late seventies for him. Um, what that did was cause a huge recession, and in the huge recession, you did have momentum at the time for rising wage costs, and you also had rising cost of energy. So rising cost of energy, we can tick that box for the for the moment. Uh, and the impact of it was to crush the economy and therefore the demand for labour went down and the demand for energy went down and those energy prices collapsed. And we could see a similar thing happening now with the high rates. Uh, but of course, what we, what we haven't got, which is what we had back in the 80s, was that wage rises were equal to or greater than the rate of inflation. And then when you had the recession, that broke the power of the unions, broke the bargaining capacity of workers, whether they were unionised or not. And you had to decline in, in real wages. And therefore, as the real wage went down, you had the wage rising less rapidly than the rate of inflation beforehand. You had oil prices falling. Uh, so those two factors together contributed to meaning that the high rate of interest that Blocker put on in the 80s crushed the inflation at the time. Now, they're trying that same trick again now. It possibly will work with energy, though, of course, we've got all the other curlies thrown in there, the Ukraine war's impact, uh, that uh, who who blew it up uh, with the Nord Nord 2 gas stream, Uh, all all those issues are going to mean that uh, if energy is scarce, the price isn't going to change all that much. It could still rise again. So um, it's nothing like the clarity they had back in the 80s, but the way they succeeded in the 80s was by crushing the economy. Yeah, so is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's, uh, if, it, if it gets consumption down, it brings prices down, then, I mean, it's not good that the, you come out the other side of this and the person who's on a low income is probably worse off than they were when they went into it. But the stuff that they want to buy, obviously that has to come down in price to, uh, to meet their ability to, to pay for it, doesn't it? So, you know, it, we, we would, but, yeah, but, it, but they're, they're, they're falling behind. I mean, uh, and it's not wage rises that are causing the inflation this time around. If mm. you go back to the 70s and 80s, and like I was involved in the trade union movement in the, in the 70s and 80s. In yeah, Australia, and that was the, it was the big fear, wasn't it? That that was actually going was, to be the cause of inflation was people asking for more, whereas now we've got... And you, you actually, you actually, yeah. We've got strike yeah. action from people just trying to keep up, actually, by and large. So That's it's in, right. So it's interesting, like BT, for example, British Telecom, well, they don't call themselves that these days, but the BT group are refusing to give an in-line inflation uh, to uh, to their workers and yet they charge me inflation cpi plus three percent every year on my bill and everybody else do they 
I don't know how they That's get away with that. every year. Yeah. Automatically. Yeah, automatically. They, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's CPI plus 3%. Yeah. That's uh, part of their billing system. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, in their, it's in their contracts, in all agreements, you can't, you can't get out of it. And yet they're not prepared to give their workers in li- something in line with CPI. I'd be saying you should actually be giving your workers CPI plus 3% because that's what you're charging me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so companies are, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that they are, that, that they can get away with doing that. And this, there's this big fight from everybody just to keep pace with inflation. Because people that, want to maintain yeah. the value of the money that they have, they're just looking for the. Well, they 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 want they want to get they, they yeah. They, I mean, what you have is at the moment it looks like the rate of inflation is three to five percent higher than the rate of change of wages. So people are going backwards now. If you go back to the seventies and eighties, uh, the rate of change of wages was up to three to five percent above the rate of inflation. And like I remember talking to Laurie Carmichael, you know, most people wouldn't know who he was actually the president of the. Metal Workers Union or the research officer for them and a leading member in the Communist Party in Australia when there was such a thing. And Laurie, the um, uh, experience of the wage rises that they managed to negotiate through the muscle power at the time of the Metal Workers Union in Australia, all the this disappeared through the inflation subsequently. And Laurie went from being a fan of high wage rises to a critic of them and said, we have to find another way of getting uh, the income transferred to the workers, which is where the Australia's superannuation scheme came from. So back then, the, the, one of the leading instigators of the increase in wages realised that that then led through to a wage price spiral. The prices went up beforehand. They, afterwards, they couldn't control uh, they, they could control the wage rate, they couldn't control the inflation rate. So the union movement gave up on trying to negotiate wage rises above the rate of inflation. Uh, now, we're not seeing anything like it this time. The way, the, as you say, the, way, the rate of increase in wages is 3% or, or more below the rate of inflation. Mm. So they're already taking a hit. And the only two other factors which you can say are causing the price rise to occur are the increase in cost of production, which we've spoken about recently, but also what you've just mentioned. There's BT, the BT grip hitting you with the inflation rate plus 3% every year. They're increasing their margin. Yeah. Absolutely, and, yeah, and, 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 and certainly and companies. That's are, the source of inflation. Yeah, yeah, and certainly companies are doing that, and uh, company and, and governments aren't tackling it. They're not saying, yeah, let's let's look at uh, the companies that are benefiting from uh, from growing their margins. In fact, in the case of energy companies, the government is completely uh, refusing to do anything that uh, is going to stop them increasing that. Like, for example, you know, not giving them a windfall tax. But just getting back mm. to th- this idea of uh, you know the cost versus the value of money. If, if interest rates are rising and the cost of money is going up, does that really change the value of the money that I have. You know, we've talked about a situation where I might have less of it if I'm a low income earner, but it might cost me more to borrow a thousand pounds, but that thousand pounds still has the same value, doesn't it? Or does the or, or does the does the value of money change as we see interest rates rising? I mean a thousand pounds is still a thousand pounds. I guess it, it's just the inflation factor you've got to put in into this. This isn't is the, it? the 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 dilemma that um, by, by focusing just on the rate of inflation, like the, if you think about what what near what mainstream economic models focus upon, uh, they really have two indicators they're worried about: the rate of inflation and the rate of unemployment. And they have a belief that there's a negative relationship between the two. So if you put the interest rates up, uh, the rising, well actually the, the 
the, between the negative relationship between inflation interest rates and the employment rate. So a positive relationship between interest rates and the unemployment rate, put interest rates up, unemployment rate will rise. That supposedly will reduce the bargaining power of workers and cause uh, wages to rise more slowly. But part of the problem we've got is they're already rising too slowly. So we're, we're targeting the wrong end, the wrong causal factor. The only causal factor that uh, policy can actually affect is the markup the firms are putting on their costs. And that is, as you've just indicated with the BT example, out of control. Uh, but to, for my way of thinking, it's still this rising cost of production because globalisation is dying. And that gave us 40 years of suppressed inflation. Now, as globalisation is reversed in the context of energy shortages and, and rising cost of production from having both less energy and less well, uh, uh, lower quality mineral resources, um, that there's nothing the government can do about that. You simply have to wear that, that uh, those costs are going to continue rising. And in this situation, it then comes down to um, what does that do to people at the bottom end of the, the spectrum? Are they going to put up with it? And the reality is because they're already on you know, close to the breadline, that's where the riots are coming from. So I don't think the price system is relevant anymore. Uh, ironically, because neoclassical economists obsess about the price system and believing they can control it with the interest rate, they're leading to its obsolescence because you simply can't price energy anymore, particularly in the UK. You've got to ration it. Mm, yeah, but generally, maybe we, we we put the energy thing aside just for just so we can get a, a, a bit lost in the theory here. If I mm. uh, if that wasn't what was driving inflation, if it was just a, I mean, maybe it was wage push inflation. Well, maybe it's hard to have this discussion without actually looking at the cause of it. But if I, if it costs me, if mm. interest rates go up for what for whatever reason, and it costs me more to borrow money. Uh, and that means that ultimately my, I have to pay more for, for my mortgage or if I'm renting, then my landlord has to pay more and therefore my rent goes up anyway. So more money goes into uh, in, into accommodation. I've got less money to spend when I go shopping. Mm. Uh, so I, but I, you know, I still want to buy the same stuff, but I've got less money to spend on it. So, mm. does that mean that I would value that money greater? Does that mean there's greater utility? The, oh, the things I'm well, buying, I would put greater utility value on it because I go, well, okay, this can of beans now actually costs me more. <coughs> it's more important to me than it was before because it costs a higher proportion of what income I've got left available. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, that that does happen because. You know, you have less disposable income. You worry more about where it goes. And this is one of the ironies of the Tory mentality, thinking they got there because they think sensibly about money, whereas the poor don't think about money at all. Garbage. When you're close to the breadline, it's all you think about is what you've got left, what you can afford to spend it on, and how can you manage to make it till the next paycheck comes in. And so in that sense, poor people are thinking more about money than the rich ever need to do. In fact, one of the defining features of being rich is you don't need to think about money because you've got plenty of it. So this is, this is the impact of this is all going to be on the bottom end of the, of the the spectrum and and because we have such inequality and such a level of poverty particularly in the UK but also in places like Italy as we've seen from the riots over there and the, and France with the gilet jaune uh, they're just not going to accept the price system anymore mm. and this to me is one of the great ironies of neoclassical thinking they know how the price system works a they got it completely wrong and b uh, 
they've their their the enthusiasm for growth has effectively broken the price mm. system, and we're getting forced slowly but surely into rationing essential commodities. Yeah. All right. Well, look. When we come back in just a second, um, I and by the way, if you don't like the ads, if you're listening for free, then become a subscriber uh, on Patreon. Become a supporter on Patreon, and uh, you can hear this podcast uh, without the ads. Uh, that's uh, and and Substack and Substack. Yeah, absolutely. So either either way, uh, but when we come back, uh, which could be very quick for some of you. <laughs> We're going to look at um, <laughs> the uh, just the, the idea of interest rates. You know, when when central banks are meddling with interest rates, it, it's a dangerous game. Are they doing the right thing? And do do we actually need to play in that space? What happens if we just had a fixed interest rate and that was it? We'll look at that in just a second on the Debunking Economics podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, we're in this an interesting situation right now, aren't we? Where you know we know that the government has to borrow more, and this is the same around the world because uh, people are struggling and they need help with energy bills. And before that, obviously, they needed to borrow more to help with COVID. That pushes up uh, the, the yield on bonds, uh, so the cost of money for the government goes up at precisely the time when uh, we want it to go down. I mean, that's a, that's a bit cockeyed, isn't it? But I, I mean, that's, that's market forces for you, but it's market forces working against the government. It's cockeyed in the way we think about how the government borrows, what the government does when it when it issues bonds. And this is something I've been a little bit of a fight recently on Twitter with a, a bunch calling themselves Progressive Money Canada, who I think of regressive thinking about Money Canada is a better way to describe them. Because when you take a look at the, the double entry bookkeeping, and I'm, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to brag here. I'm the global expert on double entry bookkeeping, period. <laughs> so I invented Minsky. Uh, building Minsky taught me double entry bookkeeping, and now I'm using it as a way of building uh, models of the financial system. Right. And if anybody wants to make any argument whatsoever about the financial system, if you can't make it using double entry booking, then STFU. Okay, and that includes the Progressive Money Canada in particular, uh, as it happens. It's, it's so good at you're you, so you're, good at double entry bookkeeping. You're lousy at doing your accounts, though, Steve. I don't. Uh, I am totally lousy at my own account. <laughs> no doubt about that. That's my cash flow issue. Back to the Patreon and Substack issue there. Uh, but yeah, I overcommit myself. There's no, no doubt about that. But the point about when you do the double entry bookkeeping and say, when the government sells bonds, what's actually going on? And the answer is, and this is a quick one for this particular discussion, the government deficit creates money on the one side of the bank ledger and it creates reserves on the other side. And then when the government issues bonds equal to the gap between taxation and spending, that gap is, is, is covered 
by the, the, the reserves that the, gov, the um, banks have have risen by that amount. So when you offer them bonds, you're saying, would you like to swap this non-income earning, non-tradable asset for an income earning tradable asset? And the answer is normally yes, please. So the, the, that, that itself, the, the selling of the bonds, um, does not require, does, it does, is not the same thing as debt. So I'll, I'll go back to my favorite analogy for there. If I gave you a million dollars, you'd be happy, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Okay. If I then told you you can't spend it, you'd be unhappy, wouldn't you? Yeah. But, but I say, hang on, I can make things a bit better. I'll sell you bonds, a million dollars worth of bonds, and I'll pay you 3% interest. Would you like that? Well, it's not as good as the first offer, but I'll take 30, it. It's still 30,000 yeah. 30, a year. Yeah. Okay, hang around for 30 years, it's worth it. Yeah, well, that's what is actually going on when the government sells bonds. And now, if it says, well, actually, rather than... Because, because it's created the, the funds, not the money, funds, because you can't spend reserves on anything other than transfers between other banks and, and transfers between the government sector and the market, the market economy in terms of taxation and so on. Reserves are not money, they're funds. Um, you can use those funds to buy bonds. And when you do, the money that the reserves that have been created by the government deficit enable you to get these bonds. Now, the interest rate that you pay on those bonds, what's going on there? Well, when the government issues the bonds, because it's required by its own laws, most governments have said they, the, the Treasury cannot borrow directly from the central bank. Therefore, the Treasury has to sell bonds onto the, uh, onto the market, the, the money market, the, what's, what's called the, the, market. the, the primary yeah. dealers. Yeah. Well, the primary dealers. Mm. So this, is, this, is, this is not a, not a market. You've got to, to be able to buy bonds initially, you've got to be either a bank or a, a primary dealer. So you've got special relationship with, in your case, the Bank of England, and you can actually take part in the bond auctions. Now, the funds you're using are being generated at the aggregate level by the reserves that have been created by a government deficit. There's still tons of extra money in the bank account as well. So even if you don't sell the bonds, there's still money there, funds there, that the bank's going to want to use to buy those bonds. But when you issue the bonds, you issue bonds equivalent to the deficit you expect to see come along, plus the interest on the current level of outstanding government debt. Yeah. So, so you're okay. covering yourself, now, yeah. But, you, but you're not only covering yourself, you're creating money. Yeah. And you're creating money because when, when the government pays that money to the banking sector, and I'll, I'll focus just on the banking sector here, a lot of bonds are then on sold to the non-banking, non, non-bank financial institutions. Mm. But if, if you just look at, say, the, if, if 100% of the bonds are bought by the banks and they don't sell any of those bonds to other organisations, then when the government interest rate goes up, the interest payment turns up in the reserves as well, and it turns up in the short-term equity of the banking sector. So the increase in the interest rate is actually increasing the income of the financial sector. Yeah. And it's all it's generated by the capacity of the government to create money. So, so there's a higher so interest rate. Right. Yeah. So, that, so, so, let's, so I've got this right. So uh, in effect, you've got a, a bank that's sitting there with, with the cash in reserves. The bank, the, the government says, oh, we need some, we need some money because we've got to pay, uh, help some households out here. So let's issue bonds. And those bonds are bought by the bank. So basically, you're swapping that, that cash, which is sitting in, the, in, the, in those reserves for the bonds so that you've actually got cash that you can give out to those, to those households. But then you've got to um, you've got to satisfy you've got to give a reason for the for the bank to have switched that uh, that cash for for bonds. So you so you're basically paying uh, the interest rate to them, and whatever the interest rate is, then you have the the, the the government has to has to cover that cost as well. But I mean, no, 
No, okay. Tell me where I've gone wrong on that. <laughs> okay, you've gone wrong by saying in the first place the bonds that raise the money. Again, we need to do the double entry bookkeeping. What create, creates the money is the deficit itself. Yeah. So okay. the, the government yeah. has, has a limitless capacity to create money. It's simply got to decide to do it. And all our hang-ups are having believe it has a limited amount of money and it has to raise it from the private sector, which is completely wrong. Yeah, because uh, it's, so get, because it's getting it out of, out of bonds, which are... are, are no, 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 no. It's no, getting no, it out no, of reserves, no, no. sorry, which are sitting in banks. No, 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 no. It's okay. creating the reserves. Right. This, oh, this right, is where we're... We've finally got it through our, our heads, courtesy of 50 years of non-orthodox economic research and then the Bank of England and the Bundesbank coming on saying the rebels are right and the conventional ones are wrong. Finally got it through our heads that banks create money by creating debt. Okay? The government creates money by creating reserves. Right, and okay. So, if we, yeah, we get that yeah, through our heads, yeah, yeah. that's the... So, okay, so when, the, the, so, okay, the money, so let me try again. Yeah. So when you... So yeah. when they are... When they are um, ex- so basically they're putting money into bank accounts... Uh, because yep. and and that is uh, that is money that's going into the into the reserves and then they're switching those reserves for for bonds in effect. That's right. It's so, a switch. It's a, it's an yeah. asset swap for the banks. It has no no role in creating right. the money, uh, but it but it is part of the changing how the money is backed rather than being backed by reserves. It's backed by bonds. And the real impact of that in terms of the double entry bookkeeping, what it's guaranteeing is that the account the treasury has at the central bank does not go negative. Yeah. That's the real role of yeah. okay. That's the real role the bonds actually have. Now, again, I know Canadian numbers better because I was having a fight with this Canadian mob just recently on Twitter and on my Patreon blog. Um, but if you look at the amount of money in the Treasury's account at, at the Canadian Central Bank, it's roughly 70, 70 billion Canadian, and I love this term, loonies. Yes. I, I, that's I the current. That's what they call the currency. Yeah, yeah. They call I've, the currency loonies. Okay. Yeah. There's roughly seventy billion loonies in that bank account right now. So as soon as you put the bonds out for sale, they're snapped up. Even if like you might put out, like if you put out bonds equivalent to on a weekly basis, and most of the auctions do run weekly or even higher frequencies. If you're running a deficit of let's say fifty billion a year, fifty-two billion, just take a precise little number, you're going to issue a billion dollars worth of bonds every week to finance that. When you issue them, there's seventy billion dollars of funds in the reserve accounts. Of course, they'll be snapped up. Mm. That'll drop those amounts to seventy from seventy. Of from fifty-two billion to fifty-one billion, okay. Then you spend it. Then it goes back up to fifty-two billion again. Okay. So the actual right. process, okay. So the, the the bonds are simply a swap. Now, when you look at the interest rate that's being paid, the if you, the reserves used to get no interest rate, now they get an interest rate, and you'll find the bond rate is normally put slightly above the rate paid on reserves, but. The government is setting both levels. The government could easily decide, or the central bank could easily say, let's offer zero interest on reserves. And that would not stop the banks accepting government spending because that's what they do. They're supposed to do it. Equally, if they do that and they then offer a 1% interest rate on bonds, that's still better than zero. Well, so, 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 why, so the, why, why would they... So isn't there an opportunity then so we get over this whole argument because it's, it's just... It's semantics in a way that if the if the government has to has to pay uh, more interest, the cost that we've told the cost of borrowing goes up, and then that's our future generations that are, are going to have to pay that. Well, if which it's, is nonsense, yeah. But if, if 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 it is a nonsense, then why wouldn't we just say, well, I'll tell you what, 
why when we issue government bonds, why don't we just have a very low, if we feel like we have to move interest rates for the rest of the economy, why don't we just offer them at a lower rate for uh, when they are being bought by uh, uh, you know by banks? Why, why yeah. not just have a very low rate? Banks would have every reason to hang on to them. I guess because then they would sell them on the open market because they know they're going to get a they're going to get a high yield if they if they pass it on. That's the problem, and, and that's it? a large part of what they do. I mean, there's a huge mm. amount of on selling, and this this actually counteracts government money creation because if the if the banks buy 100 percent of the bonds and then sell 95 percent of them to non-bank financial institutions and anything like companies that are you know stock market traders, the hedge funds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, pensions, superannuation, blah blah blah, they buy it then when they buy it, they are running down their own deposit accounts at the banks in return for which the banks run down their own holdings of bonds because they're transferring those bonds across to the uh, accounts of the non-bank financial institutions. So the fact that banks can freely sell the bonds which they buy on the, on the primary market to non-bank financial institutions actually counteracts government money creation. And I, if I was running the central bank, I would control that. I would say we, are, it, we decide the circumstances under which money comes into the economy and we are not going to let you, we, we want to, you, know, you, you, you can fill people on what that joke is about. Um, we will, um, we will um, let you sell, say, 50% now or 75%, but, but not 100% and control the amount of money creation because it, it's not that bank, it's just that the Canadian mob thought that the government had outsourced money creation to the private banking sector, completely wrong on that point. But because the banks can arbitrarily decide how much of the bond they get to sell on, and as you point, if they got you know, low interest rate, then they'd be selling more on the open market, that actually, that actually eliminates the government money creation. Mm. So if we want to have the fiat money system controlling the amount of money in circulation, we need to control the amount that banks can sell uh, to non-banks as well. So, uh, by the way, that that reference, we decide how much money comes in, is is a reference to to John Howard, who uh, the Australian Prime Minister, who who famously said, "We decide who comes, how many, you know, who who comes into and this the country and what under which they come." Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, so it's, I mean, messing with interest rates is a bit of a dangerous game, isn't it? Because if you make them too low, then uh, then asset prices rise because everyone borrows to invest, you know, normally in housing. Make them too high, and the economy mm. tanks because those mortgages that are taken out, uh, they those rates go through the through the roof and people can't afford to keep their houses um but it's it's not really a free market determining all of that is it or is it oh, i mean but, it's, isn't it isn't but, a bunch yeah. of governors sitting in the bank of england in in, in their cozy boardrooms deciding uh, the fate of the economy well, I mean, it's more letting the financial sector decide how much debt burden to generate, mm. and we get sucked in. This is this is the great danger of uh, of, of a so free those market banks deciding finance. how many ho- housing lights they're going to issue. In other words, yeah, and mm. and what that is that is actually what's caused the housing inflation. I've done done this work for you know looking at the how. Uh, what actually causes changing house prices and changing share prices, and it's to the changing growth of new new private debt. Yeah. So if we don't control one, we then have these you know, runaway levels of private debt, and that then makes interest rates much more potent and much more deadly. And just one thing I wanted to fit in here before we, before we finish, uh, there's a brilliant book on data that I, I, I used decades ago from a very uh, non-orthodox statistician called Ehrenberg. The, book, the title of the book was Data Reduction, and he said the basic role of statistics is to take data and turn it into information. And ironically, in that book, which he wrote back, I think, in the 1930s, he decided to use a, an example of an a economic indicator which changed very, very rarely. And guess what he used? 
the interest rate. Mm. So the volatility of the interest rate is actually a product of mainstream economics ignoring the role of credit in the economy. And now we have these huge levels of private debt. And then again, highly inflated asset prices caused by the rate of growth of that uh, new debt. And, and that's why we're in a conundrum. So if you want to address this thing, it comes back to my solution. You've got to reduce the level of private debt. And then we can get interest right. rates out of the des- destructive role they have in the economy right now. And that relates back to, you know, where we're talking about the value of money. Because if the, if, if the money involved in buying a house, so for example, a house that might have been worth £250,000 is now worth £1.5 million, pounds for, for example, but you are earning... Uh, you know the, the the multiples of your your income to pay for that isn't is not as great as six times or whatever it always greater mm. than six times you know you know what I'm saying the relationship between how much you're earning and the value of the house the value of the house has gone up way more uh, yeah. so your i mean that that, that must mean that the, the you know the, the value of the money that you're placing to buy that house has to have, has to have increased as well so there's a um you know there's a there's a position there and everything else in relation to your house cost of your house uh, the, the magnitude of difference ma- makes them less relevant. You know, so can of beans as a proportion of buying a house is now mm. way lower than it was. So we are placing greater value on a house, even though the house is exactly the same. And the house will be now plunging in value because of the rising interest rates. Yeah. So, so, so for, that's going to be real fun for the future for the economy in the next one or two years. Right. So if we if we were looking back, if we go back in time and try and change all this, what if if interest rates just stayed the same? What if we were to pick an arbitrary number like three percent or five percent or whatever? I mean, it would mean a, a bond traders obviously wouldn't exist because they wouldn't have anything to play with, anything to bet on. But would it create stability? I mean, businesses would know the cost of borrowing. We'd all know, be able to plan for our mortgage accordingly. Uh, it, uh, would, would there be any problem with that if we just said this is we're having a fixed interest rate for everything and it is three and a half percent, say, for example? What would be wrong yeah. with that? Well, to have that, you've got to have a stable level of private debt as well. And that's what we should have had. We should have stuck at a, a, trying to target the level of private debt being between my, my, my basic rule of thumb is between fifty and between forty and seventy five percent of GDP. And if we'd kept it at that level, we could have stable interest rates, and they would just be, uh, you know, a, a cost of money issue for whether you decide to to invest or not. Uh, but instead, we've, rather than investing, we're speculating and gambling because you you can't get returns anything like what you need to finance the level of debt people are taking on out of anything other than speculation. And what we've got, is, 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 as Keynes once said, is an economy dominated by the comings and goings of a casino. And just a final point. I mean, there's talk about, you know, whether the, the Fed and other central banks can push up interest rates to try and stop inflation but have a soft landing which seems to me, I mean, the whole idea of raising rates is to subdue demand uh, and, you know, without killing supply. You know, that's they're hoping to get that balance, aren't they, between demand and supply. And they'll completely stuff it up because they don't include the level of private debt and therefore the servicing costs in their economic models. Yeah. And they will crash the asset markets and then they'll go and reverse on interest rates. Right. And yeah, I'm, well, I'm sure that is going to happen. But also, I mean, if you're pushing up interest rates and you're trying to, uh, aside from that, the point I was going to uh, was make uh, is that it might uh, reduce demand, but also businesses can't afford to borrow. So you, you are surely going to kill supply as well by pushing interest yeah. rates up. And, and that little equation, the value of GDP being money times velocity plus the change in credit, you'll be adding a negative number. Mm. And that's the part that they don't understand. One of many. 
<laughs> one of many. All right, very good. Uh, now, next week, uh, we're going to look at um, growth, growth, growth. Liz Truss, the British Prime Minister, thinks that we can get out of this mess. And, of course, it is the same mess in most parts of the world right now. But growth, growth, growth. Three things she's going to focus on, Steve. Uh, we'll look at uh, how that's going to work out for her. And uh, is it a good idea to focus on growth uh, when, we, uh, when we've got a planet to protect? Uh, and if we are going to protect the planet by not having growth, how do we do that while well, sticking with capitalism? God, that's a lot to ask in half an hour, isn't it? That's I will manage. That's we'll why manage. we managed to I'll go. Speak to, normally, why we go for 45 minutes. Okay, I'll talk to you <laughs> next week. See you then, Steve. Okay, bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.